If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6 today. Now, over the last several weeks, David is, or Dave has begun a, a series of messages on understanding the life of Jesus. He, he started with his birth, which we celebrated at Christmas, and he's going all the way to his death and resurrection, which we, we will celebrate at Easter. And so today, we're going to be looking at a very specific part of a passage in Matthew chapter 6, referred to as the Lord's Prayer. We're starting in verse 5 and continuing on down to verse 15. It says this, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Recently, I heard a pastor speak, and, and they said that Canada doesn't need a revival. And I said, well, what? And he continued on, the church needs a revival. You see, if the church is revived, then too, Canada will follow. So he talked to us as Christian leaders within a group, and he said, it behooves us to pray for a revival in the church. And so revival, in my mind, doesn't come from us having a new focus on the world, but it comes from a new vision of who God is. Last week, Dave left us with the declaration from Christ that he is the good shepherd. If you recall, this took place in John chapter 10, and he read from verses 1 through 21. Christ was in Jerusalem at this time during the celebration of what was referred to as the Feast of Tabernacles. Sometime later, we find him in Galilee about to embark on another trip back to Judea or Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Dedication. So I want you to track with this because there's a lot that happens between 1 John 1.21 and 1 John 1, or sorry, not 1 John, John 10.1-21 and John 10.22. You see, in John 10.22, one verse later, Israel is celebrating the Feast of Dedication. And Jesus is back in Jerusalem. So during that time between verse 21... And 22, there's a lot that actually takes place. Jesus travels back to Galilee and then makes his way back to Jerusalem. And in that travel, he has all kinds of interactions with all kinds of people. 
And in a certain place we read that we find, we find Jesus praying. And in this certain, this certain place is somewhere around Jerusalem. And, and in this certain place, his disciples come to him. And, and, and they ask him, they say, Lord, can you teach us how we are to pray? And this is the text right here that we're exploring because these are the words that Jesus uses in explaining how to pray to his disciples. See, I like to think of the biblical revelation of who God is as the tip of an iceberg. When you, when you, when you think about it, nine-tenths of the, of the majesty of God lies beneath the surface beneath the surface of what we refer to as revelation. And the tip of the iceberg that we have revealed in Scripture is so high that it extends to the heights beyond the clouds, to a point that is not even comprehensible by mere men. Now, I know that there's math majors in this room that are doing the math, and they're saying, well, God is infinite, and a tenth of infinity is still infinity. And so really, the amount that we can truly understand about God through his revelation on this earth is very, very limited. But praise be to God that he's given us some just to have the scratch of that surface to say, all right, God, I don't know everything about you, but what you've revealed to us through your word, I want to go deeper. I want to get more. Our God exists from all eternity. He is free. He is omnipotent. He is merciful. He is the beginning and the end of every person that will ever live. He is holy and he is jealous for our undivided affection. That is his only part of, or sorry, that is only part of who he is. Now, the Lord's Prayer, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches that the first priority of praying is to ask that our Heavenly Father's name be hallowed. Now, believe it or not, when I was starting to write this message out, I had every intention of going through the entirety of the Lord's Prayer and kind of unpacking the Lord's Prayer. But as I was doing study and research, I got trapped on this one phrase. And so we're not going to go as deep into the entirety of the Lord's prayers I wanted, but I do want to explore this idea of the hallowedness of God. And who knows, next week we may change things up and cover the rest of the Lord's prayer. I don't know. We'll leave that up to the Lord. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I want you to notice this as a petition or a request. It's not a declaration. You see, for years, I read this as a declaration. I read that Jesus is declaring that God's name is hallowed. But I want us to shift our thinking and understand this as a request. Because to open the Lord's Prayer, Jesus Christ actually gives us three petitions to make. It is a request that God, or to God, that he would see to it that his own name be hallowed. It is like uh, the other missionary text that we read in Matthew 9, 38, where Jesus tells us to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers into his own harvest. 
See, it never ceases to amaze me that we, the laborers, should be instructed to ask the owner of the farm who knows the harvest better than we do to add more farm hands. But isn't this the same thing that we have here in the Lord's Prayer? Jesus is telling us to ask God, who is infinitely jealous for the honor of his name, to see to it that his name be hallowed. Well, it may amaze us, but there it is. Right here in this passage, it teaches us a couple of things. The two things that surprise that this surprising request teaches us. One is that prayer does not move God to do things he is disinclined to do. He has every intention to cause his name to be hallowed. Nothing is higher on God's priority list. The other thing that prayer is, is that prayer is God's way of bringing our priorities in line with his. God's will, God wills to make great things the consequences of our prayers when our prayers are the consequences of his great purpose. If you bring your heart into line with the jealousy of God to hallow his name, you will pray with great effect. Let your first and all determining prayer be for the hallowing of God's name and your prayers will plug into the power of God's jealousy for his name and you will find true power. But now we have to ask the question, what does the word hallow mean? What are we asking God to do when we ask him to see to it that his name be hallowed? The word hallowed means sanctify. The same Greek word stands behind both English words. Jesus tells us to pray, let your name be sanctified. Sanctify means to make holy or treat as holy. When God sanctifies us, it means that he makes us holy. But when we sanctify God, it means that we treat him as holy. So Jesus is teaching us to pray that God would cause his name to be treated as holy. And so our question becomes, what does it mean to treat God as holy? What are we asking God to do when we pray that he cause his name to be treated holy? Well, to answer that question, I found four other places in the scriptures where the word hollow or sanctify or treat as holy is used in relation to God. Each of these gives us an idea of what it means to hollow the name of God. The first one that we come to is Numbers 20.12. Now, in Numbers 20.12, this is during the wilderness wandering of the people of Israel. There was a time when they had no water. And it's really uh, quite amazing how the Lord works because we're doing, or I'm, I'm doing the, the Bible in a year as I, as I normally do. And, and today was the day to read through Numbers 20. And so I got a refresher even this morning on what was taking place in this particular passage. God tells Moses to speak to the rock, to bring forth water for the people. But we know what Moses does. In a fit of rage and anger and bitterness, he speaks rashly to the people. And he strikes the rock twice with his rod. 
the water comes out, but so does the stinging word of God to Moses. This is what it says. Because you did not believe in me to sanctify me or to hollow me in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Notice the words. You did not believe in me to sanctify me. You did not believe in me to hollow me. These words are given us, or have given us our first answer to the question of what it means to sanctify or hollow the name of God. It means to believe him. The first way to treat God as holy is to trust what he says. Instead of a, a peaceful confidence in the power of God to respond to a mere word, Moses was bitter and impulsive. God is not hollowed when we do not have a spirit of settled confidence and peace in his word. John said, he who does not believe God has made him a liar. 1 John 5.10 When you make somebody a liar, you profane that person's name. This is the opposite of treating a person as holy. Not trusting God is the exact opposite of hollowing his name. The first thing we mean when we pray for God to cause his name to be hollowed is that he would cause people to believe him. Hallowed be thy name means trusted be your word. The second thing that we come to is actually in Isaiah 8. A second text here explains that it means to hollow the name of God. God speaks to Isaiah and warns him to be like the people, uh, sorry, not to be like the people of Israel. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Him you shall regard as hollow. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Oh, how we've messed that up. How do you hollow God according to this text? You hollow him by not fearing what men fear. You hollow him by fearing him. Very particularly, it means that when God commands you to take your stand for him in a hostile situation, you fear displeasing God more than you fear the hostility of man. You guys know this as well as I do. Our culture is built on fear. All kinds of fear. Fear that there's not enough money in the bank. Fear that, that anything could happen at any moment and, and our whole world will come crashing in. Fear that I will lose my job. Fear that something negative or terrible is going to happen to my children. Fear that my marriage is on the rocks. We live in fear. 
We're told to. Fear that at any moment, war is going to break out and the whole world is going to be thrown into turmoil. Don't fear. Don't fear losing your house or your wife or your children or your bank account or your prestige. Instead, fear the prospect of saying no to God. So when we pray, hallowed be thy name, we mean, Father, let your name be feared. Or more fully, Father, cause people to have such a high view of you that it is a much more dreadful thing to lose your approval than it is to lose anything that this world can offer. Hallowed be your name, dear God. The third thing we come to is in Leviticus 22. This shed lights on what it means to hollow God's name. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. It says in Leviticus 22, starting in verse 31. I am the Lord, and you shall not profane my holy name. But I will be hollowed among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. We hollow the name of God when we keep his commandments. We profane the name of God when we break his commandments. So when we pray, Father, let your name be hollowed, we mean, Father, cause your commandments to be obeyed. Hallowed be thy name means obeyed be your commandments. The final text to illustrate the meaning of hollowing God's name is Leviticus 10.3. Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. I will show myself holy among those who are near me and before all the people I will be glorified. This text seems to say to us that God's showing himself holy and his beings glorified are virtually the same thing. Holiness, his holiness and his glorification are tied together. So when we pray, hallowed be thy name, we also mean glorified be thy name. So let's sum this up what we have so far. Hallowed be thy name is a request, not a declaration. We are not saying, Lord, your name is hallowed. We are saying, Lord, cause your name to be hallowed. That is, cause your word to be believed, your displeasure to be feared, your commandments to be obeyed, and yourself to be glorified. You hollow the name of God when you trust him, revere him, obey him, and glorify him. That is a heavy list. But everyone sitting in this room, I'm sure, would agree that our God is worthy of all of those. So we have a big question that remains. For whom are we praying? When we pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, whose heart are we asking God to change when we pray? Father, cause their hearts to believe you and fear you and obey you and glorify you. 
If we take our clue from the next two requests that we come to in the Lord's Prayer, I think we will hear two answers. One answer is that we're praying for ourselves. The other answer is that we're praying for the spread of the gospel to the unreached people of the earth. Each teaching us to pray that God's name be hallowed, Jesus, or sorry, after teaching us to pray that God's name be hallowed, Jesus teaches us to pray, God's kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Each of these requests has a personal and a worldwide dimension. For example, Matthew 6, Jesus commands us to seek God's kingdom first rather than seeking food and clothing. In other words, we are to seek to let God be the ruler and king of our lives now. So when we pray, Father, let your kingdom come, we should mean, mean Father, rule my life. Be my king Get the victory over my anxiety about life's necessities. This is the personal dimension of the coming of the kingdom of God. But just as important as the personal dimension is, is the worldwide dimension. Jesus said to his disciples at the Last Supper in Luke twenty-two eighteen, 18, From now on I shall not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. In other words, the coming of the kingdom is not only a present spiritual experience, but also a future event. It refers to the time when the king will come in glory with his angels in flaming and fire and gather his elect from the four winds and establish his kingdom on the earth. Jesus describes it in Matthew 13. The son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all evildoers and throw them into the furnace of fire. Their men will weep and gnash their teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. So when we pray, pray thy kingdom come, we are asking God to draw history to a close and establish his kingdom on earth. And who will be a part of that kingdom? Well, listen to the glimpse of which John describes in Revelation chapter 5. This is verse 9 and 10. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. When the kingdom comes that we are praying for in the Lord's Prayer, it will be composed of ransomed people that Christ has redeemed from every tribe and tongue and people and nation on earth. Therefore, when we pray, thy kingdom come, we are praying that God would extend his mighty hand to complete the purpose of world missions. Namely, the ingathering of the redeemed from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. For whom are we praying when we pray, hallowed be thy name? It seems pretty plain. We are praying not only for ourselves, 
but the unreached tribes and tongues and peoples and nations of this world. God's purpose is to be hallowed. Believed and feared and obeyed and glorified by the ransomed in all the people groups of the earth. The same thing turns up when we focus on the third request in the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On the personal level, this must mean, Father, please cause me to obey your will the way angels obey it in heaven. Psalm 103, 21 says, Blessed, Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers that do his will. Help me to do his will flawlessly. And to do it with the same fervency and undivided devotion that they have in heaven. Make my obedience be a heavenly obedience. But on the worldwide level, the meaning is far greater. In heaven, there is nothing but obedience to the will of God. So when we pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are praying that the earth will be filled only with people who will do the will of God the way the angels do in heaven. In other words, we are praying for the kingdom to come. We are praying for the earth to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. We are praying that the cause of world missions would so prosper in our day that all the ransom from every tribe and tongue and people and nation would be reached and gathered in and the king would come. For whom are we praying when we pray, hallowed be thy name we're praying for the people of the earth to come to an understanding of who Jesus Christ is and what his shed blood has done so that they can be brought into right relationship with him we're praying for you and for me and we're praying for the people who are outside of this building right now, trapped in utter darkness. Because they don't know what Jesus Christ has done for them. We as the church should be desperate to have the kingdom of God come. We should be desperate to have his will be done here as it is in heaven. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Let me close with three brief implications. The first one is this. Since the first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer give us the priority of Christ's heart, we should learn that God's top priority is the hallowing of his name in all the earth. It is, if this is God's top priority, that his name be hallowed, it should be our top priority. It should be our top priority that God be believed, feared, obeyed, and glorified by a ransomed people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The consummation of all our joy in God will be obtained when his name is hallowed 
in all the earth. Second, we pray that those priorities come into reality. We learn that prayer is the root of true mission advancement. Jesus teaches us his priorities in the form of a prayer because he intends us to pray these priorities into reality. If the kingdom comes in our lifetime, it will be because the church of Jesus Christ around the world has begun to take seriously the Lord's Prayer. It will be because we have recognized that the prayers, hallowed be thy name, and send forth your laborers into the harvest, are the same prayer. And are the direct command of our Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, seek to let the prayer be answered in your life. The final implication emerges when we consider that the evangelization of the world is not yet done. God's purpose to call out a ransom bride from every tribe and tongue and people and nation is not yet fulfilled. From which I draw out this charge for our church right now. If we aim to be obedient to the Lord, we must seek to let his prayer be answered in our own lives. We must hallow the name more deeply. We must believe and fear and obey and glorify his name more intensely. We must be willing to allow ourselves to go wherever he leads, to do whatever he calls for whatever his great purpose is. And we must be so captivated by the love and majesty of God that no joy is more powerful in us than the joy of counting everything as loss for the sake of Christ. We want to know, or we, if we want to know how hallowed be the name of the Lord, it comes from treating his name as holy and doing exactly what he's called us to do in his word as is revealed through his prophets and the people who spoke. We sing, blessed be your name, O Lord. We pray, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and praise you for all that you are. We thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for this revelation of prayer that praise the heart of God. And Lord, we recognize that your glory and your holiness and your uh, sanctification is the priority of who you are. And so, Lord, as, as your people, as your church, as your bride, I pray that we would have a heart that matches the heart of God. And we would recognize when we pray, hallowed be thy name, that is a request. And that that request would be made known in our own lives personally and in the global hearts from every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. Lord, we pray this in your Son's name, the wonderful and holy name of Jesus Christ, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.